0: Welcome to this week's episode of the HC Hive, a podcast about all things HCI, UX, and grad school. I'm Taylor.
1: And I'm Madeline, and we're students in Georgia Tech's Human Computer Interaction Program.
0: In this episode, we will be talking about animal computer interaction, or ACI. If you're unfamiliar with this term, don't worry, you're not alone. In her manifesto on animal-computer interaction, leading ACI researcher Clara Mancini explains that ACI aims to understand the interaction between animals and computing technology within the context in which animals habitually live, are active, and socialize with members of the same or other species, including humans. Mancini also explains that ACI aims to develop a user-centered approach informed by the best available knowledge of animals' needs and preferences to the design of technology meant for animal
1: use. ACI has many implications alongside understanding interactions between animals and computer technology. It's led to further insights into animal cognition, support conservation efforts, and improved the economic and ethical sustainability of food production. Overall, ACI expands the horizon of user computer interaction research by pushing our imagination beyond the boundaries of human computer interaction.
0: And on that note, let's welcome our guests for this episode. Welcome Melody, Cole, and Josh. Thank you so much for joining us today. To start us off, could you each briefly introduce yourself and how you're involved in ACI? And to start, Melody, would you begin?
2: I am Melody Jackson. I am the director of Georgia Tech's Animal-Centered Computing Lab. And I created the lab in 2012 with two of my colleagues, Thad Starner and Clint Ziegler. And our mission is to study the ability of computing to improve the lives and the relationships between humans and animals. So things like conservation, enrichment, health monitoring, communication, and we keep finding more and more areas. It's been something that's brand new technology, brand new field over the last eight years, and I've been very privileged to be a part of it.
0: Awesome. That is great. Thank you for sharing. Cole, would you go next?
3: Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Cole Anderson. I'm a recent graduate of the MSHCI program. I took a course with Melody and I've been working with her in the ACI Animal Computer Interaction Lab, focusing on a canine athlete health performance product.
0: Great. And Josh?
4: Hello, I'm Josh. I first got into the ACI field through Melody's Animal-Computer Interaction or Animal-Centered Computing class in spring 2021. I later was head TA, and my project in that class focused on building a computational enrichment device for the sea otters of Georgia Aquarium, and gradually that evolved into a marine mammal health informatics platform that was a combination of an instrumented toy a dashboard and lots of interviews with trainers at Georgia Aquarium.
0: Fantastic, thanks so much to you guys for sharing. To start off the questions, in the introduction, you heard me define ACI based on Clara Mancini's ACI manifesto. I wanted to ask, based on your personal experiences in the field, would you modify this definition or include things that maybe weren't said in the introduction?
4: I would include that ACI is really the practice of user-centered design for animals as users. Earlier you said user-computer interaction, and I think that replacing the human with user there is a real punchy way to go about that distinction and sort of bundle in any sort of critter that wants to use a computer.
2: I might add that the reason I changed the name of the lab from Animal Computer Interaction Lab to Animal Centered Computing Lab is because it's not really all just about animals interacting with computers. We have expanded to a lot of other things, like I mentioned before, health monitoring, so that we might have environmental sensors, we might have cameras in in a space where an animal lives that might give us information about how that animal's feeling that day. And that's still definitely under the bailiwick of animal-centered computing. So we have expanded Clara's definition slightly.
0: Absolutely. That's a great thing to keep in mind while we have this discussion.
1: So then to orient ourselves to specific examples within ACI, Cole, I heard you've worked on a project involving mushers and dog sledding. Josh, I understand your master's project focused on sea otters. Can you both tell us a little bit more about those projects?
3: Yeah. So I started working on that project initially for the class that Melody teaches, a group of us Got together, we had the idea we wanted to focus on dog performance. A PhD student, Charles, had an idea about working with dog athletes. And immediately that what came to my mind was like, okay, you want the best long-distance dogs, you got to go right to the Iditarod, which – For those who don't know, it's like a 1,049-mile race starting in Anchorage, or it starts officially in Willow, and then ends in the northern part of Alaska. I'm blanking on the city right now, which is sad. But it's this massive race, which is just through the most brutal terrain, and our whole team loved it. We were all like, we love dogs. Why not try for it? And we pitched it to Melody and Josh, actually, who is the TA, and both of them were like, yes, please go go after this let's try it so that kind of got the ball rolling on that whole project and then we went through the user-centered approach cold calling mushers trying to figure out what their life is like how they interact with their dogs what do they look for what are problems good things bad things which was very enlightening and we actually found this fantastic musher Aaron Peck who wanted to work with us and then as the project progressed was like Do you guys want to come up to alaska and actually evaluate this prototype if it gets built and we at that moment our passion just surged and all of us were putting in double and triple time we went created our design requirements after the brainstorming and then jumped into manufacturing which was the team did fantastic we all went forward using that process of coming up with one prototype iterating it with potential users and that was one of our big problems since we're here in Georgia, there is no snow. You can't find many people, people mushing. <laughs> so we talked to some veterinarians as well to better understand this user group. They suggested looking at other dog athletes. There's sports called Can I Cross, which is basically very similar to cross country running, except you have a dog hooked to you in front and they pull you really fast. There's also bike drawing, <laughs> which is very similar except it's on a bike. There's a huge community here in Georgia And we were able to evaluate our prototype with with them and get their feedback. And that's where we substituted and learned that there were other people that we could even help as well. So that got us through a few different iterations. We went up to Alaska, we evaluated the prototype up there in the actual live conditions, learned a ton and got to have an amazing experience. Thank you, Melody, for helping us out with that. And now the project's still continuing. Over the summer, we've found some more mushers, and we're going to keep working with the Canine Cross athletes to improve the prototype.
1: That's so awesome. What a really fantastic adventure. And and Melody, it's great to have you on, too, to have that (laughs) other dimension of it. (laughs) Josh, can you tell us a little bit more about your project as well?
4: Yes. When I first took Melody's class in spring 2021, we were given a lot of freedom as to what sorts of project spaces we could explore. And I decided, hey, I'm totally obsessed with otters. I'm gonna do a project with them. (laughs) And I started throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what would stick. And based off of some prior research with dogs involving instrumented toys for identifying how suitable dogs would be as working dogs or service animals, some anecdotal evidence from that research pointed out that we might be able to identify health anomalies through differences in behavior identified through these instrumented toys. And so from there, I reached out to the research director at Georgia Aquarium, Lisa Hoops, and we set up a meeting with a lot of Georgia Aquarium's research staff and animal care staff. And eventually I proposed to them that we do an instrumented enrichment platform for their Asian small-claw otters because I think they are adorable and hilarious. And I learned that the Georgia Aquarium's Asian small-claw otter population is not only geriatric and pretty lethargic, but they had also come down with COVID-19, so working with them was not going to be in the cards. That said, the sea otters at Georgia Aquarium, the southern sea otters, had not yet had COVID-19, and the team had some pretty strict rules and regulations around interacting with them to keep them safe. So we decided to move forward with the project with the sea otters. Throughout my first semester working with that team, which is 10 or 15 mammal and bird trainers and curators, we established that, okay, maybe a health informatics platform with a combination of an instrumented toy and a digital dashboard to be used in the back of house habitat with the sea otters would be really effective for keeping them healthy and keeping an eye out for health issues in their population so that we can identify something like COVID-19 or chronic tooth infections or tummy issues like their otters have had before they're visible to the naked eye. Based off of a bunch of interviews and user involved design sessions, user value ranking and product testing sessions, we decided that the most effective thing would be that health tracking platform. So then in spring of 2022, we started designing a toy to be machined out of UHMW polyethylene and I designed a bunch of circuitry to throw in there, give to the toys, and listen for the otter's behaviors on these toys. Now, of course, there were a lot of iterative design bits and pieces to fill in the gaps here with tons of different prototypes, but ultimately we decided on something that looks like a little plastic wine tumbler that measures how strongly the otters are shaking the toy and this summer I am continuing with a patent pending process with the platform, a lot of Ps, and I'm hoping to establish a business plan for the product. Also this coming year, a rising second year MSHCI student is taking this on as his master's project.
1: Wow, what a journey. I really love the imagery that you gave at the beginning with spaghetti at a wall. That's very (laughs) accurate for brainstorming and just finding a foundation. It sounds between the both of your specific projects, there's a lot of problem solving in a broader sense, having COVID being a limiting factor, Cole having snow and location (laughs) being a limiting factor. Overall, it seems really there are two parts. One, the idea and the technology build, and two, iterating and testing with the actual users and factoring in what that use case looks like since it's just a little different from our own personal lives or lived experiences.
4: I have a thing I want to add. (laughs) Go ahead. With what you said about users, what's so cool about ACI or ACC as a field is that in traditional user-centered design, we have so many stakeholders, be it like the traditional human users or moderators or developers on an app or the business folks. But within the context of animal computer interaction or animal centered computing, we have the animals themselves as the users. So the dogs and Kohl's project are using this technology, they're interacting with it in such a way that it's instrumented for them, while the otters are also using this technology by shaking it and smashing it against stuff to give us those cool data readings. So what differentiates ACI or ACC from traditional user-centered design or human-computer interaction is that the animals themselves are stakeholders. So rather than just having developers, users, and business folks, you also have dogs or otters or whatever animal as a user of your technology. So you have to design with their needs and what different design elements afford interaction to them in mind
3: yeah i have to add on to that it can be very difficult one thing that we learned is you have to know the animal and then you also have to be receptive to learn from just the trainer for our dogs we just we had to go and talk to their musher or their trainer their athlete because they know that dog more than anything we could ever know you really have to expand your own thought process because usually ux you can judge facial cues and understand this, you have to take a back seat and then expand your way of thinking.
4: Also, so many animals have different social and body language cues that are totally foreign to people, like with the sea otters at Georgia Aquarium. Cruz is their oldest otter. He's a male and he's known as the resident lazybones, while Mara and Gibson are the youngest otters there who are pretty anxious around new enrichment devices then Bigsby and Brighton are the older female otters who are both super intelligent and comfortable around new enrichment devices.
1: It really sounds there's a fundamental level in which ACI and human computer action really intersects in that you're just trying to understand known behaviors and the specificity of which those behaviors relate to exactly who you're working with.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I love how you guys are comparing animal-centered computing to the traditional human-centered computing that maybe we're more used to. And that's certainly what we focus on in this podcast. Our listeners and we ourselves are much more familiar with human-centered computing. And you guys have provided some really great examples of how uh, animal-centered computing is different. I just want to open up that question a little broader. How would you guys compare uh, animal-centered computing to human-centered computing or human-computer interaction?
2: Yes, we've done a lot of thinking about that over the years as we've tried to build this community. And I am one of the members of the steering committee of Animal Centered Computing, the world that spans literally Europe and Israel and Germany and the United States. So we have a a huge international group looking at this. And what we have come to a consensus that animal computer interaction is not a subset of human computer interaction. It's the other way around. Really, we have a user that cannot give us verbal feedback, but that doesn't mean they can't give us feedback. And when we started this project in 2013, 2012, what happened, the way that this whole thing came about was I am a service dog trainer. As a service dog trainer, I also often had a dog with me. And so people were used to seeing me going through the halls with a dog. Now I happened to share a lab with one of the pioneers, probably the father of wearable computing, Dr. Thad Starner. And it took us until 2012 for Clint Ziegler, actually our other colleague to say, Hey, what if we put computers on dogs, wearable computing on dogs? And Thad and I both just (laughs) mouth dropped open. Yeah. And Clint said we could have the dogs light up and it could do something cool. And I said, no, the dog could call 911 in an emergency and started the Animal Computer Interaction Lab then. And we started out with a grant funded by the National Science Foundation, which was called FIDO, which stood for facilitating interactions for dogs with occupations. But what we were looking at is wearable computing for service dogs to be able to communicate with maybe the family members or even literally calling 911. If, let's say, you had a person that was epileptic The dogs can be trained to know that a seizure is coming on half an hour before the person knows the seizure is coming on. And the dogs try to get the person to a safe location. They might push them up against a wall so that if they pass out, they slide down the wall instead of falling. But what if that dog could call the person's spouse or their mother and say, hey, we're at this GPS location. It could be life-saving, literally. So we built a system that allows dogs to activate different affordances and HCI folks should know what that means from Don Norman. That is something that looks like what it's supposed to, to, to do. We have a tug sensor that looks like it's supposed to be tugged. We have buttons that look like they're supposed to be pressed. And yes, dogs understand that. And we did a huge study of all these affordances that would allow someone to train a dog to be able to communicate with humans. So that was our initial study, and we got a half a million dollars from the National Science Foundation to study that. So what I, I really appreciated that they were taking us seriously; that this isn't just a fun thing. I had uh, one of my very best mentors took me aside when I started this work, and he said, "Now you make sure it isn't just fun, and I know you love dogs, but you make sure this isn't this just isn't fluffy." And then we got the half a million from the National Science Foundation. Two years later, we got another half a million. To study touchscreens for dogs, so this is a serious field. It has a lot of impact. We hope on the world, and every time we turn around, we've got a new application for this. These kinds of technologies, and I have to brag a little bit on the class. I did the first class in 2014, and since then, we have had four PhDs out of this class. Three of them have already graduated, and one of them is still in the program. and I hope there will be many more. We've also had many master's projects. We have really just contributed a tremendous amount to this field. Georgia Tech is one of the leaders in animal-centered computing, and I'm super proud of our students, especially Josh and Cole in particular, were very proactive in making contacts with the actual users, the actual animals, and the actual people that handle the animals. Josh, for example, said I want to work with otters I said oh wow I don't know if the aquarium would be really happy to just have random people coming in and working with these really valuable animals about two days later he said I've got a meeting with the aquarium you want to come (laughs) I said what (laughs) yeah so we got to go and spend the day with otters and it was unbelievable I have to say I can't believe they pay me to uh, teach this class with students like you guys. And Taylor was an amazing student yourself. I can't even count how many papers have come out of the result of this class and the result of this the team that got built. And I am just the most lucky professor at Georgia Tech to have this kind of students. I don't know if the area just attracts the best students in the world, but I certainly have them. I I couldn't be happier about it.
0: Well, Melody, I think we owe a lot of that to you. Uh, (laughs) I think you attract the hardworking and excited students who are really passionate about animals. Everyone highly recommended ACI as a class (laughs) to me. And I was like, okay, let me just drop this other one and I'm going to do everything I can to get in. (laughs) This is all really Awesome stuff. I love hearing about the FIDO project. ACI seems inherently like a very fun field. There's a lot of opportunity for fun for people who love animals. But I love that you emphasize this is serious. It solves serious, life-threatening problems. And it's not just fluff. It's absolutely incredible and important, serious work. And I think it's really great that you emphasize that. But I guess to get a little bit more to the fluffy side, I have to ask you guys, like <laughs> what's the best part about working with animals in ACI, and ACC?
3: You couldn't have a better user, I think is the best way I could describe it. You go up, you're exhausted from working the night before getting things ready. And then all of a sudden you just see for my case, these dogs that are just literally just their eyes light up. They see you like, oh, we're going for a run, we're going for a run. This is awesome. You're a new friend. Sweet. Fantastic. <laughs> and just it's the people within these groups just are all fantastic. They all love what they do and all they want to do is just make things better in in any way, shape, or form. So the buy-in and the amount the people and the animals you get to work with really just uplift you every time you go in.
4: And I think that what's so great about animal centered computing as a field rather than traditional animal research is we're not testing pharmaceutical or cosmetic products on these animals. Well, we're building technology and testing it with and for the animals. Getting as close to informed consent as you can from these animals for doing these tests is really central to the animal computer interaction mindset. And testing the technology in as ethical a way as possible and making it fun and beneficial to the animals is really what it's all about. So if Mara and Gibson are stressed out by a toy, we remove it from them and we enforce positive behaviors and we reward them for their positive reception to the toy. Whereas if Brighton or Bixby or Cruz are given the toy and they think it's the coolest thing in the world and they want to keep it, we'll say, "Okay, that's great. You really like it. Please give it back." We need to do more testing and we'll reward them with a treat for giving it back to us. So ultimately, it's a positive experience for both the academic community and for the animals who are involved in the testing.
2: I think one of the things that my students didn't realize is how smart these animals are. And when we started the FIDO project, they were putting together a schedule and we had designed nine different affordances for dogs. We were going to test which one was the best one for the dogs to use, what was the most reliable, what was the easiest for the dogs to use, et cetera. And we were in a test of 20 or 30 dogs on on nine of these sensors. And they were putting together a schedule and they said, we think this is gonna take the entire semester because it's probably gonna take a month for each, the dog to learn these things. I smiled to myself and I said, let me bring my Border Collie Sky in and let's just use him as a test pilot. And I brought him in and we showed him the first sensor, 27 seconds later, he had it. Now. Sky was a, a little unusual and he was also already very what we call operant. So he was already l- trained to learn. But I showed him a tug sensor and I said tug, which was something he also already knew how to do in the context of, of dog sports, agility. And he pulled on it. And I put it on his vest and I said, get it. And he reached around and it went beep and he got a treat and he's like, oh, I wait for the beep. So I think that was the big surprise is that the longest it took us to teach any dog, and I am talking basset hounds, jack russell terriers, certainly border collies, it was 27 minutes. And my students were blown away with how smart these creatures are and how communicative they are. We subscribe to something called operating conditioning, which is BF Skinner and all that. And just about any animal will work for a reward that they want, any animal. And happily, they're happy to do it. So we're all about the positive training, the positive reinforcement. And I think that's been one of the the things that's been more educational is this is how you communicate with another species. And how fun is that to teach? We actually spend time in class learning how to do clicker training. And I think that's one of the most useful things that anyone could ever learn because it works on animals. I'm teaching you to shape your parents and your significant other and eventually your children to do things because it works. So there's a lot of psychological component to this as well. But that was a big surprise with the animals is how much they love working with us on this stuff. And of course, I love that too.
1: That's amazing. I know operant conditioning can really blow a lot of minds for students. I certainly am one of them. (laughs) Uh, Just the level of capability is incredible. Have there been other surprises for uh, you all just opening it up broader that you found within ACI?
2: I have millions of stories, but I can tell you a little (laughs) bit just with the FIDO project. We thought that the dogs would interact with the sensors in a particular way because they were designed that way. So for example, we had what we thought was a a nose touch sensor. So we're trying to trying to use things that dogs do naturally. And so with the the touch sensor, we had an ultrasonic proximity sensor on the dog's vest. And the whole idea was the dog would turn around and touch it with their nose. The dogs learned very quickly that they didn't have to touch it because it was a proximity sensor. So my border collie learned to wave his nose over it. And he also learned Dogs are brilliant at doing the most efficient motion. He learned that he only had to to move his nose a few inches away, and then he could move his nose up or down across the sensor. And we realized that could be two different commands or two different signals. So he actually created a vocabulary with interacting with this device. We had never anticipated this kind of interaction. The fact that the dogs participate in design, sort of blew people away as well. Another thing that happens in research in general is how one project will give you a eureka moment that will lead into another project, and this is how we built the field. So starting with the phyto-bite sensors, the whole idea was the dog would reach around, grab the sensor, bite it, and we would measure over some threshold that a certain strength of bite would make the beep go off, and then that would activate the, the sensor. And so we were looking at some of the bite data. And they had it mapped out for three different dogs, but they didn't have them labeled on which dog it was. And I was looking at the data, and it was measuring the bites that were out there. And I, I looked at the data, and I said, I can tell you which dog this is by looking at the bite data. And I said, I bet that's my border collie Sky because he's perfect in every way, and he is the most obedient dog I've ever had. I bet that's Sky. And they said, Yeah, it is. The middle one had just sort of little bites. There was a little bite, and then they, they would bite a little harder. a Little bite, middle. I said, That's Schubert. That's my daughter's service dog that failed out of Canine Companions because he was too soft. He was, too, he was just a little too gentle, too soft. And they said, yeah, that's Schubert. And then the, the lower one was, "It was, bye, 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 bye. I said, that's my, my best friend's dog Blitz, who is a super high drive dog. We can tell a lot about temperament from this bite data. What if we could instrument dog toys and give us a, an idea of what the temperament of this dog is like. Now, if you just looked at these three dogs sitting and playing or whatever, you'd never be able to tell that this was what was their temperament. But the sensor could tell, the bite sensor could tell. Our team, and this turned out to be the dissertation for uh, my student, Kira Byrne, who's now at MIT. She built ball, a ball that was instrumented with a uh, bite with pressure sensors. We did a, a two year long study at Canine Companions for Independence studying all the dogs coming through advanced training. And it turns out we could predict with almost 90% accuracy, which dogs are going to get placed. And if you do the math on that, and they release the dogs that aren't going to make it without putting the full resources against training that dog, they were going to save $5 million a year. And this is a charity. So that's huge for a charity. But that's how the FIDO project gave birth to the Smart Toys project. And the Smart Toys was the basis of some of what Josh is doing now. Can we expand that to other animals? And sure enough, it looks like we can. One of the other things I'll say uh, about that study is we decided to see when we do these monitoring with these dogs... We were just doing it for five minutes, 10 minutes, once with each dog. We still had that kind of predictive power. What if we take a dog and just for a whole year test him every day? So we did that with Sky, with my perfect in every way dog, Sky. And one day the student said, you know what? He didn't, every day he would pass. He was like, yes, he'd be a great service dog. Yes, 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 yes. And one day he didn't pass. And I said, there's something wrong because this dog is perfect in every way. And they said, no. So they ran it through again. They ran it and said, no, he, he doesn't pass today. And I said, I don't know what was wrong with the classifier. I was so upset that, oh gosh, I thought this was going to work. Well, for some reason, the sky rolled over and his whole underside was flame red. He had a staph infection. I, who is his owner and lives with this dog, couldn't tell that he was sick. The ball could tell he was sick. So that gave us the idea of, oh my gosh, we could use this for health monitoring. So Josh is still studying how we can do actual behavior monitoring.
4: So what's really interesting about those measurable dog behaviors is that those are natural behaviors that the dogs evolved to get to food or to find food. And we measured that behavior, or rather, Kira measured that behavior with a barometer inside of a silicone ball. So similarly, I was thinking with the otter project, what's a similarly measurable behavior that these animals evolved to do that we can instrument a toy to monitor? So, whereas the dogs bit things to trigger a barometer, I decided to instrument their toy with a 6DOF IMU, or a six degree of freedom inertial measurement unit. That is a little computery bit that measures acceleration and rotation in all X, Y, and Z dimensions. So that's six degrees of freedom, movement, and rotation. So, using that, sort of sensing device inside of a toy, we were able to measure that behavior in a similar way to what we saw the dogs biting the toy. And at the end of the day, the graphs that we generated for the sea otters were really similar to what was generated for those dogs. We generated similar graphs for three different otters based on their smashing behaviors. So Mara, who is super interested in our last session, She shook the toy all around, and we got a huge reading from her, whereas Gibson, he only grabbed a single piece of shrimp off the top. There is a little blip in his graph. And then with Brighton, (laughs) she being the smart girl she is, she smashed it so hard that the SD card inside of the thing came undone and (laughs) we lost her readings halfway through. So future readings will be done with that little SD card taped in place.
2: But (laughs)
4: All of those graphs, I think, are super indicative of the animals' behaviors they represent.
2: Just thrilled to see that. Yeah. And Cole's project is about monitoring health as well. So, Cole, you might give a little more detail about what you guys built.
3: Yeah, I would love to. I didn't touch up on it. So, from talking with the mushers and veterinarians, we learned that there was two spaces we could focus on. We could either try and do some sort of heart rate detection in real time, since mushers they base a lot of their things off of instinct and just the amount of time they've spent with these dogs they can just tell when a dog is feeling good or if something may be wrong so for them they don't have any quantifiable measures so one idea for my brainstorms was to go forward and look at the gait detection so when i say gate detection that's like how a dog runs so just like how we humans run we have different paces starting from a walk to a jog to a sprint dogs have very Uh, different ones. We decided to move forward to try and put this piece of technology as a backpack on dogs to try and measure and detect if there was a change in the dog's gait, this could lead to a problem. And that would then alert the musher to, to basically say, hey, this dog here seems to have an abnormal gait change. So we wanted to keep an eye on them. And what we learned while we tested with these dogs is that they love this sport. They love it so much (laughs) that they will continue to go no matter what. And it's really hard to try and stop a dog who just wants to keep
2: running. One of the reasons that, that we don't see that animals are ill is that animals evolved to mask illness because the weak one in the herd or the pack or whatever is the one that gets killed. A lot of times it's sad, but it certainly can happen that a, a weak member of the group can pull the whole group down. So it's not unusual for animals to pretend like they're absolutely fine because they don't want to get kicked out of the group. So animals are very good at masking illness. And the example of the, the sled dogs, they don't want to quit running. They want to keep going. And they're probably not going to show you that they're not feeling good or they're going to try not to limp if they're hurting. So that's why it's really important to put these quantifiable sensors on them. That's why we're doing this, is that we want to protect them from themselves, essentially. (laughs) Like, you are not okay, and I know you're not going to tell us that, but we're going to find out exactly what's going on with you.
1: It seems like predicting behaviors is just everything. Melody, as you said, with your Border Collie Sky, Josh, as you spoke to, with smashing open shells and more of the general behavior of otters, how does being able to predict the behaviors of your users impact those design iterations that you have or just the end result that you're trying to test?
2: That's a great question. And so I can certainly talk about the FIDO project and the example I gave before with the proximity sensor. We had made made the sensor very carefully so that the dogs could touch it with their nose. And when we found out that they didn't need to touch it with their nose, we could take the bulk of the case off of that sensor and just have a very small, very light thing. I guess the dogs were just going to wave their nose over it and they were never going to touch it. So the dogs actually affected the design of this sensor and in the iterative design, the very last one, you almost can't see its so small, but the dog knows it's there. And we also learned a lot about feedback that the dogs want to hear that beep that tells them that they did activate the sensor. And I'm sure Josh, you've had probably lots of experience with how you might change things for the otters after Brighton smashed the SD card. (laughs) Why don't you say a little bit about how you would do things differently now?
4: For sure. So earlier on in the design and prototyping process, I used three different prototypes. One of them was a PVC capsule that was screwed shut with some holes drilled in it so that particles from food inside could drift out and the otters would realize they would smell the food inside. One of them was a Kong toy. It was like an orange jumbler ball, is what they're called, I think, with some slits cut in it. And one of them was a jolly ball with a piece of car wash felt or kelp tied to it with some food in a square knot. So what I learned from the first toy, the PVC toy, is that if an otter realizes there's food inside of something but can't see or get to that food, they'll try to smash it open. So that was a really interesting replicatable behavior I wanted to try to encourage with future iterations of the design. From the orange toy, we learned that the otters would grab any food they could see because there would be some food sticking out of the jumbler ball. But since the slits cut in it were so narrow that the otters wouldn't realize that there was more food inside of it. So after they got any food sticking out, they would stop trying to get food out of it. So while the otters knew there was food there, they would look for food. As soon as they didn't realize there was any more food in there, they would lose interest. And then with the jolly ball, we got a few interesting takeaways. They were most familiar with enrichment devices that had like a hole in them somewhere. So they searched the jolly ball for a hole because they thought there would be food in a hole somewhere in it. So they looked for any openings to find food. And then once they realized the food was in the square knot tied at the end of this car wash felt, then they focused on the felt and then they started trying to smash that open. so we learned some really interesting things about what different design elements afford different interactions to the otters and based off of all of that i designed a cup-like prototype with a lip over the top of it so that we could stuff food in that and then pack that with artificial snow to form sort of a plug so that there would be a clear opening but the otter wouldn't be able to simply reach in and grab the food they would have to smash it open that also helped us avoid any sort of moving parts and really simplified the design manufacturing and use process of this toy also it means the toy will probably last a bit longer since it doesn't have those moving parts
3: yeah i got to admit even one there was one moment where we learned our lesson the hard way when we were up in alaska so we had like a backpack that you put like um, the back of the dog. And then there was a wire that comes out to then look at the connection between the dog's harness and what's called a tug line. This is what connects the mushing dog to the main line, which basically pulls the sled. So with that, there's this long wire, which we thought the best way to go about this was to leave it loose. And then in the moment, we would adjust it, tie it down with zip ties. And oh boy, did we learn when these dogs get set up and hooked up to the sled, they go from zero to 200, just insane. <laughs> so they're hooked onto the rope and they are just jumping everywhere. And only at like at a break point did we look and we saw, oh, this wire's ripped. And then we looked and it's like, another wire's ripped and it's, this wire's gone. So we don't get to see their pull data. And it's like, oh my gosh, how did we not know that this is going to be something we have to better prepare for? And once again, it just goes back to the principles of you just have to test and you learn and you're gonna fail and you got you're just gonna have to learn when you go and test
2: it. Yeah, the animals are the harshest critics of our work and we learn a lot. So we've learned a lot about food safe and ingestible silicone in the last couple of years. But one of the interesting studies that we're doing right now is the they are trying to give dogs a drug to keep them safe from things like fentanyl. So the bad guys that are trying to smuggle drugs will put fentanyl around their stash so that any dog trying to get near it will get to the fentanyl and it will kill the dog. So the veterinarians down at Auburn are have developed some prophylactic drugs, so a drug that you give preventatively to see if they can keep the dogs from getting sick from fentanyl. But does this prophylactic drug affect their behavior? So we did a before and after study testing these dogs that have had the drug and we're going to be able to measure how did it affect how they interacted with this ball. So I'm just looking at this thing and we could save dogs' lives if we can show that it really didn't affect their behavior that much, or we could quantify it at least to know that, okay, these dogs are going to get tired or whatever it is. We don't know yet, but it has opened so many doors for things that we can do that are real, that are possibly life-saving type of technologies. And I'm not sure when I got into this that we really predicted that.
0: That is absolutely incredible. And I know that there are so many people out there who would be so interested in this work if they knew a little bit more about it. So I want to ask, what advice do you all have for UX students or other human factors students and professionals who want to get involved with ACI? And this can be at Georgia Tech or beyond. We have this class
2: <laughs> that, <laughs> that it looks like we're to they're going to keep letting me teach it, which I'm thrilled about. So right now, unfortunately... I don't have the number, so I can't tell you what it is, but it will be offered again in spring of 2023, and it right now is a cross-listed class for both grad and undergrad students. But I would say that if you are interested in this, register early because Last time we offered it, we had a 100-person waiting list, and I'll try to get as big a room as I can, but the nature of the class is is such that I I like to have a, a little bit smaller group. I think we had 40 last time, but we'll try to accommodate as many people as possible because this is a real field now. It is something that is out there. We have a lot of offerings with the ACI Conference So there is a conference that happens in the fall and we're actually getting a couple of papers ready for it right now. So that is going to be virtual this year. So it will be really easy to attend. And if you go to aciconf.org, aciconference.org, you can get all the details about the conference. There's also often a summer school offered by the University of Haifa in Israel that is a virtual experience as well, where you can go and learn about what is animal computer interaction? So you can look that up as well, the, the ACI Summer School. And then we have the Animal Center Computing Lab at Georgia Tech and we meet on a weekly basis and anyone is welcome to, to hang out and come and meet the team. If you wanna look at a propose a project or something like that, I'm all ears. So we welcome people to come into the research as well as the class. So there's my plug. <laughs>
4: Also, thanks so much, Melody, for reminding me that the abstract for my research paper is due for ACI Conf in 10 days. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right.
2: Josh is writing a paper, too.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'll hop on that. Also, a bit of advice for future students is the sky really is the limit for what sort of project space you could work in here. We've had students work with their own dogs at home. We've had students work with Iditarod dogs in Alaska. We've had students reach out to the aquarium. We've had students work with wild bottlenose dolphin populations in the Caribbean. So really, if any of that is vaguely interesting to you, it's worth giving it a shot. And Taylor has mentioned in the chat, yes, we also had students work with squirrels, campus squirrels or something else.
0: Well, that is awesome info. And I think Sky really is the limit. There's so much opportunity to be creative and to explore these strangely uncharted waters. You would think they would be charted, but they're not. There's a lot of opportunity there. So thank you guys so much for sharing your experiences, your projects with us. I think it gives a lot of context to the kind of work that this actually is. And I think it will get a lot of people excited about ACI. And so Thank now, you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: And to
1: all our listeners out there, if you know, you know. And if you don't, no worries. We don't either.